thankful for the way these stories hold on to the lifetime we won't get back. I know these rivers carry. Welcome to Kankakee Podcast, where we talk about the people and places of Kankakee County. I'm Jake Lamore, and today we are joined by uh, someone in the community that um, does does more than a person I feel like realizes. Or they're, I don't even know how to introduce Emily. <laughs> I am pleased to welcome. Is it's technically eating psychologist, right? Is that how that works? Eating psychology coach. Eating psychology coach. Does that technically make you a doctor? No. <laughs> uh-uh. It does. A psychologist is not a doctor, or I'm thinking a psychiatrist. So a psychologist <laughs> typically does research in the field of psychology, and yeah. then there's counselors and therapists who are licensed, and they work with people with mental health challenges. Um, and I'm trained in a little bit different areas than they're trained. Um, and vice versa. So I can help people with some things they can't help people with when it comes to food and body. And um, if someone's struggling with severe depression or anxiety or PTSD, then they would probably get help from a counselor therapist. Okay. Well, let's welcome Emily Lavoie to the podcast. I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay. I um, I totally... Sometimes I have exactly what I want in my head of how I'm going to introduce someone, and then it just becomes a train wreck. So well, what I do um, is kind of complex. <laughs> it, I maybe that's what I was like. Maybe that was why I <laughs> I kind of messed that up. But so from that uh, that first time I met you, I was so fascinated with the work that you do because I thought to myself after just talking to you for. A couple minutes on the air that day, I'm thinking, wow, this is someone I need to talk to. And probably most of us need to talk to, and some of us might realize it more than others. Mm-hmm. And and I we'll kind of get into the the thick of what you do for a living. But first, I wanted to know more, just more about you. And we kind of were getting to know each other a little better off mic before we uh, started recording, but where, where does Emily's story begin? Okay. <laughs> I was born at Riverside Hospital. Funny, because I grew up on the Kankakee River, sort of like diagonal from the hospital, so you can see it from my parents' house. Okay. And, um, so that's not that far from where we're at now. No, and yeah. um, the joke was like that when my mom went into labor, that they swam across the river <laughs> to have me delivered. And I believed it probably till I was like five or six or seven that I realized like, oh, they they really just drove to the hospital. <laughs> yeah, we got in our, we in got March. in our rowboats and <laughs> right. on we went. Oh, that's too funny. 
<laughs> and so born and raised mm-hmm. in in, Can- in the city of Kankakee or where did you? So I, I grew up like, like my parents lived in that same house, Kankakee, right on Kennedy Drive, right on the Kankakee River. And then I moved away and went to Illinois State University. Um, I was a diver on the diving team there. Before that, I was a diver at Kankakee High School. And before I became a diver, I was a gymnast my whole youth. And after I left Illinois State University, I moved to California for a little while and spent some time out west, spent some time in Idaho, and then ended up moving back here after like being gone for 10 years. And I've been here for 10 years again. So when you went to ISU, what did you study? I was a student athlete. I jokingly say I took the athlete part way more serious than I took the student part. I of... have an athletic scholar or not a scholarship, <laughs> athletic degree. Right. What I, I, have. I didn't know what I wanted to go to school for. Um, I knew I wanted to dive. So um, I ended up changing majors four times, I think, but eventually graduated with degrees in, in psychology and communications. Where did you, did you go to, to high school at, at Kankakee mm-hmm. or so I assume you were on the swim team? Yeah. Swimming and diving. Yeah. Um, but I didn't actually swim, um, just diving. You went to ISU, you kind of did your general studies and, and competed in, and diving on a part of the, the diving team. And then after that, how did you end up out West in Idaho? Um, how did that come into play? My college boyfriend was from California. So then okay. we graduated and we moved there. So yeah, a boy. <laughs> it's always a, 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 a significant <laughs> a other, right? Yeah. When you were spending your time out West, what were you, what were you doing out there? Uh, so my first job after graduating and moving to California, I was a broker, actually. I bought and sold commodities for a company and we specialized in produce. So where I lived is where most of the vegetables that we eat come from a certain time of the year. And then as the weather in California changes, the vegetables that we eat come from Mexico or Peru or Arizona. But yeah, that's what I did. That's a big, well, actually, that could kind of <laughs> coincide a little bit with what you're doing now. A little bit. So, just a little <laughs> mm-hmm. bit, not not a ton. Obviously, you're not selling produce or selling commodities, but it has to do with, with eating, right? You got to have something to eat. Um, and vegetables, I'm sure you encourage. You come back here 10 years ago. What did you start, what did you start doing when you, when you came back? So before I came back, I decided I really love fitness. Some of you know, my favorite times of the day are when I'm at the gym, like working out. And I became really good friends with the people who owned the gym that I worked out at when I lived out West. And I was jokingly saying it was a husband and wife to the wife, Stephanie, I, I want to be you when I grow up, like you get to have such a positive impact on people and you just brighten everyone's day. And I was joking. And she was like, well, 
do it. Why, why wouldn't you do it then? I'm like, I, I'm a broker. I can't become a fitness person. And she's like, yes, you can just get a CPR certification and we'll let you start teaching a class here. I think I got a spinning certification and started teaching spinning first and then ended up moving back. And then when I, when I um, got back here, my dad had had a, a stroke. That's why I moved back. And okay. um, he's doing well now, oh, good, but it good. was nice to be able to be in a position where my family needed me and I was able to move back and help. And then I started working as a personal trainer and teaching group fitness at Riverside Health Fitness Center in Bourbonnais. And you're still working part-time, part-time yeah, working kind of at. transitioning out of the fitness industry on to like bigger and better things doing eating psychology. I feel like it's more needed and there's less of us doing it. So I would say that's I'm very true. Very passionate about it. So you're 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 back in in the Kankakee area. You're working at Riverside Health Fitness Center. Where did the eating psychology start coming into play for you? During your because that obviously that's that's when you're like, I'm going to do this. Right. What was what where was that moment where you thought this is what I need to be doing? So I um, as you know, working as a personal trainer and fitness instructor. I'm a people helper. Like I, I knew like in my heart, I wanted to help people. And I kind of realized really early on in fitness that like fitness alone wasn't enough to help people in the way that I wanted to help people like more help and deeper. And I kind of realized like, oh, I need to like, there's definitely a big nutrition component to this. So I need to get myself educated in nutrition. Um, I became certified as a functional medicine wellness coach, which is a lot to do with nutrition. Functional medicine. Yeah. That's a whole nother thing. Yeah. No, I want to, I want to hear, I've never, I've never heard of function, functional Uh, medicine. Try to explain it the best you can. Functional medicine tries to get to the root cause of health concerns. So if a person is experiencing digestive problems, it would try to say like, so let's say there's two different types of people. Okay. Maybe a person has high cholesterol, high blood pressure, uh, digestive problem. And then one type of person, maybe they're just like, oh, the doctor said take this pill for my high cholesterol cool. I'm super happy taking a pill for the rest of my life. Awesome. And this is going to control my cholesterol. Great. And then there's another type of person who maybe is like, I don't really like taking pills. And I would be willing to maybe like modify my lifestyle and adopt some healthy habits or let go of some unhealthy habits and see if I could like, you know, impact my cholesterol, blood pressure, blah, blah, blah on my own, and then maybe eventually not have to take this pill. And so functional medicine is like exploring the root cause of maybe if we change the way that we're eating or sleep more or manage our stress better, um, we could reduce inflammation or bring our blood pressure down. And um, maybe we eat more nutrient-dense foods and that has a positive impact on our health. And so, yeah, did I explain that? Yes, you you explained that perfectly. You're more or less looking for a way to treat yourself without an outside source, without without actual 
medication, prescription medication, over-the-counter. Yeah, and I don't think there's anything wrong with prescription medication. No, because I, obviously it's, it's, it. it's needed with mm -hmm. certain cases because, and I think you just pointed it out beautifully, not everyone's the same. Mm -hmm. Someone might want something different than another person. We all have that choice. Mm -hmm. So let's say you have, we both have high blood pressure and you say, I just want a pill. And I'm like, ah, no, I'm not going to take a pill. I'm going to try to do this thing on my own, see if I can change the way I eat and the way I exercise and see if that will yeah, do and the I, trick. And sometimes it doesn't because of a biological makeup. But mm -hmm. if you can, obviously, you may as well try. I view those two different types of people, like the person who prefers to take the pill, if that's what the doctor is recommending. And I view the other person who's maybe willing to make some lifestyle modifications. I view those two different types of people as morally equal. Like one is not better or worse, different strokes for different folks. <laughs> and that's the problem. Sometimes there's mm -hmm. the there's the clash between the two, just like other things in life, <laughs> politics. And yeah, it can get a little messy, but it's it's good to know that you yourself do not frown upon that, and especially with your line of work. And ideally, a person who um, is a functional medicine certified health and wellness coach would work for a functional medicine physician. And so I still do not believe we have any in this area. And a lot of the changes that are promoted to making, I think, to me, are a little bit rigid and restrictive. Think of person in what's in what sense? Can um, you give an example? Like lots of lots of foods that you would need to avoid or not eat. At. Also, lots of food rules. And coming from a person who has a past history of struggling with disordered eating and like maybe an undiagnosed eating disorder and body image challenges. I don't like recommending to a person something that in another person is considered a disordered behavior. So you mean when it comes to diets and things like that? So if a person, I'm going to use the example of anorexia. If a okay. person is eating a very small amount of calories or obsessively counting calories and like, you know, taking out entire food groups and labeling certain foods as bad and they live in a small body, well, then they're diagnosed with an eating disorder and it's anorexia is the most deadly mental health condition that there is in the entire DSM-5. Did not know that. And if a person that is living in a larger body is following all of those exact same rules and restricting food and cutting out food groups and labeling certain foods as bad and good, well, then they're kind of cheerleaded and their behaviors are encouraged. And I think that there's something so wrong with that, that we like if if something is disordered, it should be disordered across the board, not regardless of body size. I see. Okay, I, I get what you're saying now, and I think um, that's why you know being a uh, being an eating psychology, your approach is so different compared to so many others. 
And I kind I love all the things you post on your Instagram you. and your your social media pages. I always find it super helpful, just even for myself. And it just kind of makes it makes sense. Um, you know, talking about I've seen you talk about all the diet trends and and things like that, and talk about you know it really comes back to <clears throat> they're just making money, um, and it's not about you. It's about well, how much money can it, you know? Um, so. Not to start rambling, um, but so you you first start out as the the functional medicine, and then you start to get into the eating psychology. And that here's something I always think is funny: is that you're you go to the hospital, and the the cafeteria food they'll have all the foods they tell you to avoid <laughs> will be on their menu. And it blows my mind because you'll be sitting in a hospital room with a doctor and it'll be like, now uh, avoid uh, high fat foods, uh, fried foods, all these things. But I could march right down right now to the hospital cafeteria and I can get myself, uh, you know, deep fried chicken fingers and fries mm -hmm. and I always thought is wait isn't that not so it's it seemed contradictory it seems so contradictory to me and that always confused me yeah huge disconnect right like, yeah how are you yeah guys? how did I right so um and you have a different approach though to those bad foods yeah interestingly enough I had the functional medicine certification, which I really wasn't using it because in this area it was really challenging too. And I was kind of sort I, I guess at the time I didn't have the language for it. I wasn't able to communicate, but I just felt like, gosh, I wouldn't even feel comfortable telling people to follow these food rules. They're way too restrictive. And like, it was almost like, gosh, I'm sorry, you wouldn't be able to go to a restaurant at a all. At all. Um, as, or right. go celebrate holidays and enjoy food. And I just could see how that could start really negatively impacting somebody's life and social life and happiness and relationships and um, mental health. Yeah, even though at the time I didn't have the language for that. But one day I was just randomly scrolling through Facebook and I saw an advertisement just, you know, because kind of what the, Facebook knows what you're into. And <laughs> yes, so they, know, they yeah. put this advertisement for me to see and it said, become an eating psychology coach and help people transform their relationship with food. And it was like, the clouds parted and angels came down playing trumpets. Like the first time I saw the food, the, the words um, relationship with food, like smushed together. And it was like, oh, oh my gosh, I, I have a relationship with food and yeah, mine is horrible. <laughs> and I do need to like, not only improve mine, but then I could see like a lot of the people like the clients that I worked with in fitness and, you know, people would come to my class and I'd be like, yeah, like I wanted to help people, but I never felt like I was getting them the help that, you know, I was giving them information, but like information is not, you know, information alone is not enough to 
just because a person has information doesn't mean they're easily able to put that information into practice. It's just kind of like what I was saying about the doctor. Mm -hmm. The doctor will give you this information, but that doesn't necessarily yeah. mean. And so this is where psychology comes in because psychology, in a nutshell, I kind of explain psychology as, you know, studying our brain and our thoughts and where our thoughts come from and how our, you know, our experiences in life impact the way that we think. But there's this huge portion of psychology that is also our behaviors, and eating is a behavior. And so, yeah, information alone is not enough to necessarily change our behaviors. So that's where I really like, I love the psychology piece of it that deals with behaviors. So so where did you go to school then for eating psychology? I went to the Institute for the Psychology of Eating originally, which is, it was an online course and it's in Boulder, Colorado. So I went to my graduation in Boulder. Um, awesome. And there's things that I learned from the Institute for the Psychology of Eating that I feel like were great and amazing. And so I took those teachings with me and there's a couple other things that I didn't necessarily agree with and that's okay. Like and I just left those. Like what? They were, you know, teaching us how to help people transform their relationship with food and make peace with food and find food freedom. But they really kind of made it still seem like intentional weight loss or dieting was possible and something that should be a goal. And now I know, as I have continued to educate myself in lots of other ways in this realm, that intentional weight loss tends to destroy our relationship with food. So dieting and having a good relationship with food can't really exist yeah together one, they kind of have one or to, the other mm-hmm. right yeah well and also just that intentional weight loss fails 98 to 97% of the time and um, is that just because you go on said diet and then you get off the diet your weight comes back is that why it fails or I'm sure there's like many different reasons. Millions but. of layers of reasons of um, why dieting fails. But if if you if, and there's so much re- so much research out there that has explored why diets fail, and really it comes down to humans as a species are designed to withstand famines, and. Luckily, we don't really have famines anymore, and most of us are privileged enough that we have more than enough food. At least here in the United States. Yeah, put food on the table. And the famines that we experience of today are self-inflicted famines. So putting ourselves on a diet and creating food scarcity. So when that happens, our body doesn't necessarily know the difference between an actual famine or food shortage and the self-inflicted famine. And all it knows is, I don't have enough food. I'm going to slow my metabolism down. And hopefully it rains and crops can grow or, you know, somebody come and save me from this cave that I'm stuck in that has made me in this famine. And thankfully, our body is smart enough to be able to do all of this behind the scenes, because if it weren't, 
we would be extinct as a species. We would be dinosaurs. So it's actually a really, it's a really great thing that diets fail because as a species, we wouldn't be alive if they didn't. So what what do you do when a person comes to you then? Let's say instead of a person going on one of the the many <laughs> diets that are available and popular, someone comes to you and they say, I want to lose 100 pounds. What do you tell them? I would say regardless of what a person weighs, so whether they're a person who lives in a larger body or a person who's living in a relatively smaller, thin body, kind of doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum of body sizes, the culture and society that we live in puts pressure on us to want to lose weight. So even people that live in small bodies deal with this, like, you know, wanting to make their body even smaller than it is. So I would say like, yes, I know that you want to lose weight. Let's take, let's, you know, physically pretend that we're going to take, you know, you want to lose weight. Let's get out a a fake cardboard box. And I know you want to lose weight, but put that in the box and close the lid and, you know, duct tape it shut and then take that box and let's hide it in the back of your closet for a while. Like, I know that it's there. I know it's something that you want and you feel and you've been told you should do probably your whole life, but we are going to make our goal working on a healthy relationship with food. So we really focus on the relationship with food and just put that goal to lose weight off to the side for a while. And once our relationship with food has improved and we're in a good place with it, our body will come to the weight that it wants us to weigh. Um, And it's not something that we need to manage ourselves. Our body is really good at managing our own weight for us. Some problems happen like when we start dieting and intentionally losing weight, our body is smart enough to kind of be like, oh, gosh, I'm so glad I survived that famine and I'm going to gain a little extra weight. So when the next famine comes, I'll be better prepared in case it takes me longer to, quote unquote, get rescued or to find food again, even though it's just a diet. So what the research shows us is that the biggest predictor of weight gain is intentional weight loss. So we could translate to that to say, if you want to gain weight, if your goal is weight gain, go on a diet. You, It will cause you to gain weight. Wow. So, <laughs> all right. So, yeah, you, you, you sit down with that person that says, I want to lose weight. I need to lose weight. My doctor's telling yeah. me I need to lose weight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you put that aside. You sit down. And you say, okay, we need to develop a good relationship with food. So how does a person do that? How does a person develop a good relationship with food? Because I have seen you post on your socials. You're like, if you want a cheeseburger today, go get a cheeseburger. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that normally someone in the eating world or the dieting, dietitian, nutritional world will tell you. So how does how does that work? Right, it's because um, I remember seeing you post like you know when you you're craving ice cream, go have some ice cream. Mm-hmm. It's so diets tend to like vilify certain types of foods and 
worship other types of foods, right? And I try to, I encourage my clients and over the process of working with them, we let go of labeling foods as like, quote unquote, good or quote unquote, bad. And we try to look at all foods as morally neutral. So eating broccoli doesn't make you a better person morally than eating ice cream, right? I realize that broccoli is far more nutrient dense than ice cream. I'm not an idiot. Like I, I understand nutrition. <laughs> right. We we don't want people to, to walk away from this episode and say, oh, well, you know, she said they're both equal. So, you know. Yeah, morally equal. Not, <laughs> yes. Not, not, not actual yeah. nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Let's make that clear. <laughs> but because our bodies are designed and in our DNA and our genetics, our biology is designed to not like food restriction because that seems frightening to our survival. When we, even if we are restricting food ourselves or labeling a food as quote unquote bad, then um, our body is one of the things it magically does is it forces us to think about food more. So I'm going to use an example. If I said, don't think about a white bear, don't you dare think about a white bear, think about anything else, just not a white bear. You probably cannot stop thinking about what you're envisioning polar bear I'm walking around about in a, a white bear yeah, right in now. I Arctic. can't stop thinking about it. So the it. same thing happens like if if a diet says you can't eat pizza, pizza is quote unquote bad, oh, then you're going to be like, over. pizza, 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 pizza. I can't think of anything but pizza. I got to get some pizza. And then when I eat the pizza, I'm going to have the whole thing and I'm going to eat to the point of uncomfortable fullness. You're going to gorge on it. Right. right? That's yeah. our body doing what it's supposed to do, which is fight against famines. And yeah, so our body, our body's perfectly designed to protect us. And so all our body wants to do is live and survive. It's so good at that. And so I really try to encourage clients to like, let go of labeling food as good or bad and start viewing foods as equal. And we talk a lot about satisfaction. So the goal of every eating experience from now until the rest of our life, whether that is a meal or a snack is satisfaction or to allow that food to satisfy us. And when we are satisfied, we are physically full, like our tummy is full, but we're also like mentally full, right? So we stop thinking about food for a while until a couple hours have passed and we become hungry again because our body's done what it's so good at designed to do, which is digest the food that we put in it. So we really start thinking about what foods satisfy you physically and mentally and how the food that you eat makes you feel physically and mentally. And yeah, so satisfaction is a big piece of that. And food is fuel, but it's also so much more than fuel. Like food is love and connection and family and holidays and food is so cultural and um, food is supposed to be pleasurable and enjoyable. And a lot of times when we're eating like diet foods, I don't know, sometimes it kind of tastes like cardboard to me. <laughs> yeah, and that's not very satisfying. They're all processed and, and full of, you know, they, they pump all the, the protein and whatnot in there, like right? Take out the fat and, you yeah. know, take out the sugar. Like, again, these these things in food, these ingredients are demonized by the diet industry or the weight loss industry. But 
really, we want to eat the things that are going to satisfy us. Um, And if we aren't allowing ourselves to eat food that is satisfying physically and mentally, then we obsess about it and eat more and more and more and feel like, you know, I'm quote unquote addicted to food. I can't stop eating. And it's like, well, maybe you're just not eating the things that satisfy you. And a big piece of that satisfaction is getting joy and pleasure from the food that we're eating and allowing food to be enjoyable and bring us vitamin P pleasure. So what? how does it go in the case, let's say, for instance, I love Dairy Queen. I'm obsessed with Dairy oh, yeah, Queen. They're, they're actually one of our sponsors for the podcast. But let's say I sit down, I have a small blizzard, and I get to the end of it, and it's so good. It's so good. It's it's one of my favorite blizzards. I get to the bottom of it, but I just I just want more. I just want more of it. And let's say I get more of it, and then I eat more of it. I mean, that... that that can't be good, right? Well, I, I would is, kind of want to pick this apart with you. Okay. So I would like ask you, like, did, while you were eating the first blizzard, okay, did you happen to be like multi Like, were you watching TV? Were you scrolling through social media? Were you driving? Were you multitasking while you were eating? Because part of the eating experience is receiving the pleasure from food. And sometimes if we're focused on something else, like this TV show that I'm watching or this nonsense I'm looking at on social media, then we miss out on that mental aspect of eating and receiving the pleasure. So this falls into a category called cephalic phase digestion, which accounts for up to 40% of the entire digestion process and it's mental like the mental aspect of eating food i don't know if this falls under the same thing but overeating or or stress eating is is that tied to kind of what i was just talking about or is that actually separate nope from... so that falls because on... I, I i'm a big stress eater i stress eat all the time i know i do <laughs> all of my clients I would say 95% of my clients come to me because they're struggling with an unwanted eating habit. And let me just list some of those off. Overeating, binge eating, stress eating, emotional eating, quote unquote food addiction. I eat when I'm lonely. I eat when I'm bored. Yeah, I mean, I could go on and on. There's a lot of unwanted eating habits. And That's kind of what I work with all my clients on. But so to answer your question, there are actually four types of hunger. So the first type of hunger we'll say is physical hunger. Typically, we feel that in our stomach when it's empty. And the only way to deal with physical hunger is to eat food. It is the need for energy from food. So that's physical hunger. Then we have taste hunger. So that's more like a craving. I get those so often. Right. Yeah. Like, oh, I just really want the blizzard. Or I'm really craving. Oh, mine is like macaroni and cheese. It tastes so good. You and my son would be best buds because that's his favorite. And I'll use myself as an example. When I was, you know, years ago before I've done all of this work to transform my relationship with food, I'd be craving macaroni and cheese or experiencing taste hunger. And I'd be like, oh, but, you know, I can't eat macaroni and cheese because that was a food that I had learned was, you know, quote unquote, bad food. 
all kinds of carbs. And- yeah, or it's not, yeah, whatever. It's yeah. quote unquote junk food. And mm-hmm. so I would maybe like, oh, I'm not going to eat macaroni and cheese. I'm going to eat an apple or I'll make myself a chicken breast. And oh, I eat the chicken breast. I still want the macaroni and cheese. Okay, now I'm going to, you know, make a salad or a food that was more like acceptable yeah. from diet culture. But then you eat the salad and you still are hungry. And then I usually end up eating the macaroni right. and cheese and I'm like, yeah. I should have just eaten the macaroni and cheese and then I wouldn't have had the apple and the chicken breast and the salad and the macaroni so and cheese. So now you've overeaten or maybe you've had too much, right? right? So in the, in like in the taste hunger that I was experiencing, I ended up overdoing it on my physical hunger. So uncomfortably full, painfully full when I could have just let the macaroni and cheese satisfy the word satisfy coming up again, the taste hunger that I was experiencing. So we've got physical hunger, taste hunger, and then we have emotional hunger and emotional hunger and taste hunger. They're valid forms of hunger. And the answer to all four of the forms of hunger is to eat the food that's going to satisfy you. It is, let me, let me back up the train a little bit. When you were born, if you were a healthy baby, you know, you came out of your mama's tummy and the doctor took you in his hands and said, oh, it's, it's a boy and hands you over to your mom. And if you're healthy, you're crying and you need comfort and your mom takes you into her arms and she starts feeding you, breastfeeding, and she comforts you with food from the moment you're born. So how old are you? I'm 31. 31. So for almost 30... actually, I should say 32. My birthday's tomorrow. So. Ah, happy <laughs> so 30... <laughs> Thanks. So yeah, 30. I'll say 32. Okay. So for 32 years, you've been being comforted by food. And not only is that in your DNA for 32 years, that is in human DNA for 100,000 years. So it's not realistic to think that you could ever not receive comfort from food and accepting that, no, it's okay to get comfort from food. We get into trouble though, when food is the only thing we turn to for comfort or when we're dealing with an uncomfortable emotion. So it's okay to turn to food because food will comfort us, but maybe food will only comfort us so much. And once we stop getting the comfort, but we still have this like unmet emotional need, well, then we go back to our toolbox and say, I'm going to fill up the bubble bath or call my friend and vent or just, I'm sad. I'm going to cry for a while. We get into trouble when when food is the only thing we have to turn to to deal with uncomfortable emotions. So. I excel at that. I am so, so bad with that. And I know I'm not the only one. I know there's so many other people <clears throat> that do that. They have some type of emotion and the, the way they deal with it is they just they'll don't be like, oh, I need this, these fries or I need this, whatever it is. And they just. Whatever, the, it might not be a fast food. It could be anything, yeah. any type of food, really. 
it, and uh, they just eat it and eat it and eat it and eat it and eat it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I want to I want to come back to that in one second. So sure. I want to say the fourth type yes. of hunger. So we, we said physical hunger, taste hunger, emotional hunger. And the last one is practical hunger. And that's not necessarily hunger per se. It has more to do with scheduling. So maybe it's you're at work, it's 11 o'clock, it's time for your lunch break, but you're not really hungry. But you know, like from a practical standpoint, even though I'm not hungry, I should eat, I'm going to eat because if I don't eat now, it's going to be another seven hours before I get the chance to eat again. Then I'm going to be so ravenous and like starving and experiencing uncomfortable hunger. So even though I'm not super hungry now, I'm going to go ahead and eat now. So that's practical hunger. So coming back to emotional hunger, the important what one of the things I work with my clients on is like when you when you notice yourself being drawn to food. And so I notice this in myself, like I might go open the fridge and then close it. And then five minutes later, like open it. <laughs> open is there it anything else? like magically there's something else different in here? And I <laughs> Why do we we all do it? <laughs> We're opening what? the cabinet, opening yeah, the pantry. And you're just expecting that whatever you're craving is gonna be there, but it's not. But then you go ahead and you check again, hoping that yeah. So the internal dialogue that would go on in my head and what I teach my clients. This internal dialogue is like, oh, okay, I notice myself being drawn to food. I'm being drawn to food right now. Let me hit pause for a second and see if I can figure out which of these four types of hunger I'm experiencing. Is it physical hunger? Is it emotion? Am I experiencing an uncomfortable emotion? Am I looking to soothe an emotion or looking to comfort myself through this food? Or am I just like I want the taste, the taste of ice cream. I need chocolate. I need something salty. So that, you know, is is it taste hunger or practical hunger is pretty easy to cross off the list because usually it's more like, eh, I should eat. Yeah. yeah. And so we don't want to eat unconsciously. We want to be well aware and very conscious of the reason we're turning to food so that we can best satisfy what why it is we're turning to food. And so if we know like, oh, it's physical hunger and I'm very hungry. Oh, yeah. And that makes sense. It's been five hours since I ate last. I'm going to think about what is going to satisfy my physical hunger. If it is taste hunger I'm experiencing, then I can think about, okay, what food am I craving the taste of? And I'll go to that food to best satisfy Mm -hmm. that type of hunger. Going back to the mac and cheese you're talking Mm -hmm. about earlier. And if it's emotional hunger, I might say, oh, yeah, I'm I'm experiencing some discomfort because of this uncomfortable emotion. And for some reason, turning to food feels like it's good. And that's okay. It's okay to be comforted. It's, you know, it's in our biology to be comforted by food. And but is that something that someone should give into or should we be comforting that? There's kind of two different ways way. you, you could approach that. So okay. it's not bad to experience emotional hunger. It's not bad to eat emotionally, okay. but we want to do it consciously. So we would maybe say like, okay, I'm experiencing emotion. I like to get people to land on what the emotion is that they're experiencing. Okay. It's 
frustration. I had a bad day at work. I'm angry at my boss. And for some reason, eating this brownie feels like it's going to take away my frustration. Cool. Eat it. But as you eat it, notice that emotion being soothed. So notice your frustration beginning to dissipate because food can do this, but only so much. So maybe you get to a point where maybe you've eaten, you know, half of the brownie, we'll say, and you check in and then that internal dialogue might sound like, yeah, I do feel a little less frustrated. This brownie helped. But I don't think if I fit, you know, if I finish eating the brownie, I don't think my frustration is going to improve anymore. I can eat the brownie, but I, I'm going to do it consciously knowing that I'm going to still have the same amount of frustration that I have now. So I can eat the brownie or I can choose a different coping tool in my toolbox of skills to deal with emotions. And so maybe maybe I eat the brownie or maybe I leave it and go get another tool that can help with the rest of the frustration. Yeah. Because otherwise, let's say you got a whole pan of brownies there, mm-hmm. you'll end up eating the whole pan, let's say. And a lot of, of times not even realizing that it was emotional hunger that you were trying to satisfy in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we just like to bring a lot of consciousness to the eating experience and why we eat and all of the great things that we get from food <laughs> besides just fuel. Yeah. I can think of so many times I've tried to comfort my anxiety or my stress with coffee. Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's, that's not that. I mean, I suppose it's a drink. So, and it's got calories. So I guess that's a type of food. I don't know, sort of, but yeah, I, I know I've done that several times still do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and diet culture kind of, you know, ugh, sort of brainwashes us to think like, different things are bad. And if you've been a victim of diet culture, like if you've lived on this earth long enough, you really start hearing so much opposing information from diet culture that eggs are good, quote unquote, good, according to some diets. And then, you know, eggs are bad. They're bad. They're high in cholesterol. They should be avoided. I remember I, I saw an article sometime in the last couple of years trying to settle that, you know, that argument. It's like, are eggs, are they actually good or are they actually bad? What, what is, which, which one is it? You know, it's, and it's, <laughs> it's not just eggs. It's like basically every food that there ever was. Yeah. Like, cause some diets, you know, if well, I'm thinking of popular diets now, like keto, which is sort of a kicked up, not a kicked up a couple notches of Adkins, which, you know, faded out of style because everybody tried yeah. it and it didn't work long term. And just so, like, well, just like every other diet that's come along. Right. You know. So, you know, Adkins Keto would say that carbs are quote unquote bad. I do not believe carbs are bad. In the Adkins or Keto diet, like whole grains would even get a bad rap. Fruit would even get a bad rap. That's one thing I never understood was fruit is bad. And I'm like, how can fruit be bad? Right. It's full <laughs> of vitamins and minerals and nutrients and yeah, antioxidants. And, and it helps us fight cancer. It's, and... it's got natural sugar in it. It's not added sugar. Yeah. It's so. interesting because like a lot of times, so there's a big disconnect between like people will say they want to lose weight for their health, but then the 
know, cut out food groups, which are incredibly healthy, healthy and nutrient dense and um, help our body function at its best. And so a lot of times if a person is eating in order to try to lose weight, they it's like a disconnect between like eating to lose weight isn't net isn't the most nourishing way and nutrient dense way to fuel our body. So if your goal is health, eat foods that are nutrient dense. But if you eat something that's, you know, you know, a fun food or a play food, that's what I like to refer to them as, know that that's not going to destroy your health. And just like when it comes to fruits and vegetables, there's something called the phytonutrient spectrum. So there's six categories of the phytonutrient spectrum, and it's based on colors. So there's a category that's red, and orange, yellow, green. And then the fifth category we call white, tan, brown. And then the sixth category we call blue, purple, black. And so all fruits and vegetables and things that grow on plants fit into one of those color categories. And we don't only want to eat green vegetables and green fruits. We want to get the entire variety that the different colors offer us. And when it comes to variety and food, we want a large variety of both nutrient-dense foods, and fun foods and play foods as well. And it all balances out in the long run. Because you're not only, as you've pointed out, you're not only feeding your body, but you're feeding your mind mm -hmm. as well. And I feel like the play foods kind of, they play into, they play a big part in that yeah, psychology they... thing, especially when you pointed it out, going out to a restaurant. If you're going to celebrate somebody's birthday, if someone were to follow those restrictive diets, you're not going to have any fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you're you're seeing someone else eat chicken Parmesan and you're like, oh, gosh, that looks so good, but I can't have it, you know. Right. And then you're not receiving the satisfaction from food and eating enjoyable, pleasurable foods that is like, it's like a basic human right. It's a human mm -hmm. need in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like the need to feel enjoyment and pleasure. And that leads to satisfaction in food. So where does, I suppose this, this has to come into play. This would be a big part of it. And I don't know where this fits in, but appearance of someone's body being, and I know that ties into this, right? one's appearance whether it's you know let's say um the they are in a, a larger body but they are healthy but they don't like their appearance because society has told them you need to be skinnier right this is you're asking such good questions i'm, I'm, I'm so proud well, of I'm you <laughs> <laughs> well, i think you did good research before my interview <laughs> I no, I did not. This is just questions that I have. And I feel like most I would hope most people would have. It's things we all struggle with. I struggle with body image issues. You struggle mm -hmm. with body image issues. We all do, whether we're too skinny or too big or in the middle or wherever you're at, we all struggle with it. Mm -hmm. You know, so I mean, 
Yeah, body image is kind of just like I explain it to people as the the little voice inside of your head that talks to you about yourself or your appearance or your reflection or, you know, sometimes if you see a photo of yourself, that little voice in your head will maybe start saying unkind things. And if that little voice in your head is constantly saying unkind things about your appearance, then you could do some work to improve your body image. And if that voice in your head is pretty nice the majority of the time, then you probably have a pretty good body image. So how appearance plays into it, right? Yeah. How do you, do you is that something you work on right. with your clients or do you play into the body image thing? Or I'm, I know that's mostly, obviously that's something a, a person on their own really has to sit down and, and work on themselves. Because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are seeing themselves in whatever kind of light that is, right? Yeah. So this is such a good question because as an eating psychology coach, I help people transform their relationship with food. And you can't really do that work and, and help a person have a better relationship with food if you don't address that body image piece. And I, I kind of like to compare it to that saying, what came first, the chicken or the egg? What came first, a bad body image caused your relationship with food to become poor or you had a bad relationship with food and that caused you to have a bad body image. So yeah, you have to address both in order to address one. Otherwise, you're like the work is incomplete. So there's an interesting way I've been trying to address this piece. And it's this is a very complex topic as well. Yes. But um, when it comes to like human diversity, we're well aware that the human body comes in a large variety of skin colors. Some people have lighter skin. Some people have darker skin. And there's things we can do to change the color of our skin. Like I'm Caucasian. I could you know, go out in the sun and become more tan. But I have some health risks associated with the color of my skin that getting a tan is not going to change me to the same health risks as somebody who naturally has darker skin. So like a a extremely pale person has a higher risk of developing skin cancer in comparison to a person who naturally has darker skin. So just because like the pale person goes out and gets a tan, it doesn't change their risk of getting skin cancer. Okay, so we can keep going with this. Like eyes come in different colors and, you know, people who have blue eyes maybe have different health risks than people who have naturally darker eyes. And I could put in colored contacts, but that's not going to change me from my natural genetic, the color of eyes that I was born with. And bodies are meant to come in a diverse range of heights. Some bodies are meant to be taller. I'm one that was meant to be shorter. And there are actually health risks associated with people's heights as well. So I could put on high heels, but that's not going to change my health risk to being like the same health risks as a naturally tall person. And like hair comes in different textures, hair comes in different colors and, you know, noses come in a wide variety of shapes and sizes and our ears are different and our hands and feet are different lengths. And we accept this as part of the diversity of the human species. And just like all of those, human diversity says that bodies naturally will come in a large range of 
shapes and sizes and weights. And so we can come in this large variety and still be healthy because our health is impacted by our genetics. Our health is impacted by our behaviors. So there are certain behaviors that promote health, such as sleeping seven to nine hours a night, managing stress, having good relationships and friendships in our life, eating a large variety of balanced food, exercising or moving your body regularly. Yoga. (laughs) Right. And so those are the things that promote health. There's also a big piece of our health that is impacted by like our socioeconomic status. So like the neighborhood that we grew up in, if it was safe and you could go out and play and your mom wasn't like, no, 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 you're not allowed to go. You are going to be healthier. Um, If you learned how to read, you are going to be healthier. So there's, there's there's a lot of things that impact our health. Diet culture tends to like brainwash us to think that the only thing that impacts our health is what we put in our body or what we eat and how we move or exercise our body. And there's that's only a very small piece of the puzzle. And so behaviors are in some ways in our control and those impact our health. But weight, our weight in and of itself is not a behavior Therefore, weight in and of itself does not impact our health. Sometimes our behaviors might impact our weight, but if we did become healthier because we adopted a healthy behavior and maybe our weight changed, we're not healthier because our weight changed. We're healthier because of the behavior, but we tend to like give the credit to the, to the weight, weight loss. And, wow. and again, the research doesn't show that weight loss is possible long term. So yeah, you maybe your weight did change short term, but and to me long term means 5 years. Okay. And I would imagine let's say a person has developed a good relationship with food under your guidance, they're probably in the long term time frame being in that good relationship the body's going to fluctuate in weight, I would imagine, right? So um, not not in major degrees, I suppose. I, I, I guess it depends because what, the older we get, the slower our metabolism gets? I don't... Typically, typically yeah. Typically, mm-hmm. yeah. And unless there's like some thyroid things going well, on. Well, sure. It medical, way yeah, too. medical conditions, yeah. So well, as I'm helping people transform their relationship with food and like working through unwanted eating habits, we use this process called intuitive eating. And well, what was the question that you asked me? I was giving a little background. Well, in the I, guess, I guess it was just saying that even if a person does develop that good relationship with food, their, their weight, weight will change. Their weight is going to change regardless, right? I so mean, when a person has a good relationship with food and they're eating intuitively, which means like, you know, you listen to your body. If you're you aware. get good at listening to your body, our body will let us know. Like, um, I don't know, sometimes I just crave an orange. Maybe my body is telling me I need some vitamin C. Sometimes I crave a steak or a big juicy burger. Maybe my body needs some protein. Sometimes I crave macaroni and cheese. Maybe my body's like, oh, I need some energy from carbohydrates. Um, So really like learning how to trust your body and that your body knows what its needs are. So similarly to like thirst, 
when my mouth is dry, I take a sip of water. I'm not like, oh, I, I have to wait until my Apple Watch tells me it's okay to drink and I can only drink two ounces. And I, oh my gosh, I have to wait. I'm still thirsty, but I have to wait two hours until it's time to drink water again. Or it's funny to even like, like you can also compare this to like going to the bathroom. Like when I have to go to the bathroom, I have to go to my the bladder stretches and that releases signals that notify me to get myself up and go to the bathroom. I'm not like, wait, is this, is my, like, I can't trust my body. My body's lying to me. I have to have a person that's an expert in this. Tell me when I should and shouldn't go to the bathroom or how much I have to measure it. And it has to be the perfect amount. <laughs> It's so silly, right? When, when you put it in that context, it sounds extremely silly. And so food is the same way when we get good. And and so everybody's born an intuitive eater. And somewhere on the, along the line, diet culture just screws us up. And so I help people step back, almost like I think of like restore to factory settings and become the intuitive eater that we all once were. Um, so there's four different things that can happen to our body when we become an intuitive eater and have a good relationship with food. Some people's bodies lose weight. Some do. Some people's bodies stay exactly the same. They don't gain or lose weight. Some people's bodies do gain weight. So there are people who struggle with restricting food and they're eating less than enough on purpose. Um, and maybe they're, you know, struggling with some like unknown malnourishment and they're doing this maybe to artificially control the size of their body through artificially controlling their appetite. Um, and so, yes, maybe they did gain weight after they became an intuitive eater, but they are healthier because of that weight gain. Because they're now at the weight that their body wants them to be at. They're at their healthy weight. And that has to be a very hard thing to go through in your mind and, and accept. Yeah, because of our cultural influences. Yes. Um, some people in this journey of, you know, having a better relationship with food, they gain some weight at first, but then long term, they eventually end up losing weight. And and that a lot of sense. times, yeah, because, because we've been following these food rules and diet rules for so long that when we're first starting to ease up on them, because having a good relationship with food means having a good relationship with all foods. So sometimes we're drawn to the foods that were the ones that we previously had labeled as bad. Yeah, because you're, we were told, no, 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 don't. It's just like mommy, you know, mommy used to tell you growing up now, don't, you know, push go, that button. Don't push, don't push it. <laughs> don't you do it. I must yeah, push it's the Like button. you mentioned at the beginning about that, you know, telling me not to think about a polar bear, uh -huh. or think about a white bear. Right. I couldn't, I could not think of it. You bring it up. I'm thinking of polar bears, you know, so. Yeah. Same so thing. it's normal to kind of be drawn to the foods that were once like, you know, the foods that were vilified yes. um, from diet culture. And then. And it's also to once again, stress that just because you can eat those foods does not mean you should overindulge or indulge in them 24 seven, I would imagine. Right. When you have a, a good relationship with food, you give yourself unconditional permission to eat all foods 
in all quantities with whatever ingredients for all of the four types of hunger. And when you stop labeling foods as quote unquote good or bad, something kind of magical happens because it's like, wait, this isn't the last time I'm going to eat pizza. I can have pizza again whenever I want it. I can have more pizza tomorrow. I can have more pizza an hour if I want to. I'm not starting over on Monday and I'm <laughs> never going to limit pizza again. You're sort of suddenly like, hmm, I, I, I don't, it, the urgency to eat it all now because gonna, this is the last yes. time it just fades away. Kind of like, okay, let's use the example of carrots. Typically, people have a great relationship with carrots. They'll eat some and they'll be like, oh, I've had enough of these. I'm done with them naturally because diet culture has never like labeled carrots as bad. We're not overdoing it on carrots. So then eventually as we work through this, pizza becomes carrots. You can have some and not go overboard. And then your body's like, no, I've, I've had enough. I'm done with it. I'm done eating. Or like maybe maybe I want something else. I'm done with the pizza, but I still want something else that's yeah. going to satisfy me even more. Is there anything that you want to make sure that we mention? Obviously, I want to make sure you mention how people can contact you if they have any questions or you know they want to work with you side by side, but what are some other, I guess I should say, misconceptions or any other things similar to that that you kind of want to stamp out? Um, something that I kind of, I work with, I'll end up working a lot of my clients with this concept, so simple to say, so hard to accept, bodies change. That is hard to accept. Very hard to accept. And getting into my 30s, I'm starting to see, you start to see that a little more. I mean, you kind of saw it in your 20s, but I feel like in your 30s, you really start to. Yeah, I'm going to be 40 next year. So yeah, I like I see my body changing. And it's interesting that like, obviously, children's bodies change, they're growing, but then people typically hit this age. And I find like from what I hear from clients, for, for whatever weird reason, it tends to be like, what I weighed in high school when I was a senior was X, therefore, that's what I should weigh when I'm 50 or 60. And I was like, well, no, who that's like, that's not a thing. Like, you know, when you're in high school, you're 17, 18, in a lot of ways, you don't have your adult body yet, but it's a normal part of the aging process for your body to continue to change. And I think like we're well aware because I'm going to live to be a hundred at least <laughs> that I'm not going to look like I do at 39 when I'm a hundred. I can accept that, but it's a little bit harder to accept that like, okay, well, if I'm not going to look, you know, when I'm 100, the way I look at 30, I'm probably not going to look the same at 50 as I do at 39 either. But that's a lot. That's a harder pill to swallow. There's so many things are changing in your body. I mean, as you age, you have less skin. And women are going through menopause. Typically women are going through menopause. Yeah. There's, I mean, just everything. Your whole body is just getting older. Mm-hmm. And part of like, yes, the, the shape of our body will change. The, the weight of our body may or may not change. We and shrink. Fluctuate. We, yeah, we get shorter. Uh, okay. Like yeah. I'm getting wrinkles and fine lines. I'm getting gray hair. It's part of the aging experience. And our 
culture, our society definitely like, you know, worships youth. So like youth are more acceptable and more beautiful and more visually appealing. And I help people accept, you know, the way that their body is inevitably going to change throughout life. Yeah, it's a, definitely a, a good reminder. Right. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad you brought that up. We we so we touched on that a tad. I feel like earlier, but not into that degree. So I'm glad glad you brought that up. So yeah, where can people get a hold of you? Oh, all of the regular places through the social media channels. So I'm on Facebook um, at Emily Lavoy Coaching. On Instagram, I am at Emily Lavoy underscore eating psychology. Um, a really easy way is to go to my website, which is my first and last name. So Emily hyphen Um, It's my last name is spelled L-A-V. O-I-E. And whether you go through Facebook or Instagram or my website, you can schedule a free Zoom consultation to meet with me. And they're typically about 30 minutes long and I kind of get a feel for what a person may or may not be struggling with and kind of let them know like, yeah, I think we would be a good fit. I think I could help you work through some of these challenges that are coming up for you or like jokingly like, oh, you're still kind of looking for a quick fit. But I'm still going to be here doing this. So what? Go try that, and when you fail, I'll yeah come back. <laughs> That's a mean joke, huh? I say it with love. <laughs> okay, all right. You go ahead and try that. But I'm going to be here when yeah. you get, when you're uh, when you're all done. Sometimes and, we have to hit rock bottom. <laughs> well, I think what's nice too about what you do and your background is that you also have the fitness background as well, and I feel like that probably helps people feel a little better too they i I feel like you're you're well-rounded oh thank you uh, you know getting that into place as well as the the uh you know eating psychology part of it i feel like my journey has been exactly the way that it's supposed to be like i got what i was supposed to get out of fitness and i love teaching yoga and it's all led me to eating psychology coaching and intuitive eating and now i've like okay i had to go through all of those little different stepping stones to get where i'm supposed to be and i'm here i landed finally (laughs) i'm never gonna look at food the same now i'm gonna be like oh wait what did emily say oh yeah Okay. <laughs> All food is what good am I, food. Am I craving this because, you know, or what am I craving? You know, just trying yeah. to figure out all those different things. I hope so. you got some good takeaways. I, I, I did. My mind is, is uh, just like blown away. It's, it's wonderful. Thank you so much for uh, coming by and kind of explaining the process a little bit. Thank and, you uh, so much for having me. It's been yeah. a real pleasure. Of course. And uh, maybe we can do it again sometime or, or find some way to, you know, to work some kind of cool event out or something. I would love so, that. And then uh, when I start my own podcast, I'll need your help. Hey, I'm, <laughs> like I said, I'm, I'm all open to help out. So it's, it's a, it's a great medium to get into. And, and with, with eating psychology, there's so many things that you can pinpoint on and say, okay, today we're going to talk about, you know, you could do, uh, you were just talking about the four different types of hunger, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's four. You could you could probably break down each one of those four types of hunger and like even pinpoint even more and get even deeper on just the emotional mm-hmm. 
hunger find something in there that you can talk about for 30 minutes or whatever. You know? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I could talk about just hunger. I could talk about just <laughs> yeah. fullness for days. Yeah. So days on end. You just have to like put the tape <laughs> over my mouth so I stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, like I said, it'd be a perfect fit for you then. All right. Thank you again, Emily. Thank you. Well, that concludes this episode of Kankakee Podcast. I'm Jake Lamore. Thank you so much for listening. Please share this podcast with a family member, friend, or neighbor you think might enjoy learning new things about the people and places of Kankakee County. Also, a special thank you to our patrons for helping make this episode possible, including Jake Lee, Jesse Arsenal, Dave Barron, Daryl Damper, Samantha Rocknowski, Lake Iverson, Travis Garcia, Jane Bostwick, Don Harrison, Simon Topless, Scott Wright, Carrie O'Connell, Jamie Race, Joanne Barry, Anthony Vaselli, Eric Olson, Dan DeBoard, Jeff and Rosa Carroll, Teague Drenan, Sandy and Steve Twait, and Rose Lucky. Now to become a podcast patron, go to kankakeepodcast.com and click on the patron tab. If you pledge $5 or more per month, you'll also hear your name announced on an episode of Kankakee Podcast. Now, there's also other rewards like access to extended versions of episodes, behind-the-scenes podcast episodes, podcast merch, discounts on special events. Uh, there's even an option for you and I to spend to a day together at the Kankakee County Museum and so much more. Your monthly pledge is truly appreciated, and our goal right now is to reach $400 per month, which right now we're at about 60% funded. So please sign up for the patron program today at kankakeepodcast.com. Our theme song is by Lupe Carroll. This river can